Hello and welcome to the Development Dilemma podcast, a place for the conversations we've been avoiding between expats and locals in the development space. We're here from both sides of the table to tackle development dilemmas and chart how we can do it better. Join me as we start the conversation. In 2019, only 6% of Kenyan startups that received over $1 million in funding were led by locals. It's clear that the startup space is disproportionately skewed to expats, and this is across the continent, at the cost of local entrepreneurs who seem to be crowded out. That's the backdrop for this conversation, where today I speak with Ifayomi Carr, someone who comes from a place of experience, having sat on the side of the entrepreneur in two startups, as well as sat on the side of funders in venture capital firms and private equity funds. And therefore, it means that he comes to the discussion with a rich understanding of the challenges that entrepreneurs, but also funders face in this ecosystem. We begin by delving into Ifayomi's background and the journey he's taken in startups as well as investing, followed by the role familiarity and trust have in making the funding and entrepreneur ecosystem in Africa so skewed. We then go on to tackle why so many startups end up hiring expat or white members to their senior management team. Something I really appreciated in this discussion with Ifayomi was that he's someone who because he's worked on both sides of this and has grappled with these questions deeply, he has a much richer understanding of the difficulties that entrepreneurs and funders face. And so whilst for someone like myself, it's very easy to criticize and look at some of these organizations and assume malintent, what he adds is a more perspective and context for the difficulties and a call actually to all of us to think of ways we can all work together to improve things. So it's a really engaging conversation and one that has challenged my opinions and I hope it might do the same for you. All right, well, thanks a lot, Ifayomi, for coming on to the podcast. Absolutely. No, I'm happy to be here, and thanks for, for reaching out. I'm excited for this. Great. Well, I think what would be really helpful in our discussion today, as we kind of focus on startups in that space, is to hear a little bit of your background, and I know the varied nature of that, which I think means that you come with a perspective that's quite rich in terms of the different aspects. It's funny, my work journey in some ways mirrors um, how I grew up and what, what forces I was around. So just as context, I grew up in Washington, D.C., but my dad is from Sierra Leone and my mom is from St. Vincent, but she worked for USAID. So as a kid, even though I had this sort of nice upbringing in the States, um, I was constantly both going back to Sierra Leone with my dad and sort of being exposed to my family there, which is very different circumstances, and then was also traveling quite a lot with my mom. My professional journey started quite vanilla. So I went to Penn for undergrad, and like many students out of undergrad, I took you know, the best job I could find. So I went in management consulting. I was at Boston Consulting Group for two years, and I would say that was a really great experience. I learned a lot, and so I got this really strong like, tool set. The downside was the work itself was probably not the most exciting for me. And so I had been lobbying to be staffed on a project in Nigeria. Through a variety of factors, I ended up staying there for a full year and had a really great, incredible experience. After a year, I came back to New York and quit after my first project. I just had a really tough time going from Lagos projects and that environment and work style to back to New York. Yeah, I think that's quite a contrast to experienced, <laughs> uh, as well as you know, environments. Then you were in BCG, you'd quit back in the US, and what took you next? I was having these conversations with people about what to do after consulting, and I wanted to stay in Nigeria. My mom was still there, and I liked the work. And so I ended up joining Jumia, which at the time, this was in 2014, there were very few startups. So for a variety of reasons, Jumia was kind of like the biggest shop in town at the time. And Jumia itself is a, is a shop, so. Exactly. <laughs> so it all, it all sort of worked out. So yes, I, I joined Jumia. And you know, as a startup, I, I had no, I was 24 years old. I had no context for 
what I was doing. I constantly had that kind of imposter syndrome when I'm managing a team of people that have been doing this job for longer yeah, than 24, I am. 24, that's, that's immense, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and as, as you know, my name is Ifayomi, so people assume I'm Nigerian. They assume, my name is Yoruba, um, but I wasn't Nigerian. And so I also had this imposter syndrome about a foreigner, a Sierra Leonean American, leading a team in Nigeria, having no experience. Anyway, so Jumia was my first exposure to the startup world, and I loved it. I had a really great experience. The, the learning and growth, in some ways, I think those go in tandem with some of that uncertainty and anxiety, at least in my career it has. And that was probably peaks for both of those at that stage. And towards the end of my time there, and this is in 2014, 2015, when the Ebola crisis was really heating up in West Africa, I have carried a Sierra Leone passport for much of my life and have sort of this pride for Sierra Leone and have gotten so much from my family and from my culture there. But I always felt like I hadn't really given back anything, really. Um, and so when the Ebola crisis hit, it's hard to remember now, but there is this big call to arms from the diaspora community from these countries, mm. a lot of folks that were in the UK or the US, to come back, help set up some of these structures within government, and sort of help get this country through crisis. And so... I end up joining uh, the Sierra Leone government as sort of like an information management analyst. So I thought I had very little skills to offer, but having had those two years in consulting and even the startup experience meant that there was an asset at that time. Um, so I went to Sierra Leone, worked with the government there for six months. We would make presentations we present to the leadership every morning and evening, and it was kind of like crunching numbers, um, making reports, and we did all the press. From that, obviously, I'm sure you took away a lot and, and also was able to contribute significantly. Yeah, and so and so I went to grad school kind of with the intention of, like, let's get back on track. Like, you know, we've had all these different experiences. This is a chance to kind of reset. So I ended up going to, to Harvard Business School, which has this great Africa footprint. And I did what I thought I wanted. I, wanted, I thought I wanted to go into African finance. So I went to private equity, and so I kind of followed the herd a bit there. You've done enough of not following the herd <laughs> yeah. previously. So. Like maybe this will work. Um, and it's you're, like, not, you're not a sheep. That's yeah, sheep. I, I think so. I, I convinced myself at least that I wasn't a sheep, but maybe that's for the, the public to decide. But maybe so I, I did this internship, and like I liked working for startups. I consider like Sierra Leone government, NERC was a startup. It was an organization that started four months previously that didn't have any systems. From an output perspective, I think startups have proven to create sort of the most innovation, the most transformative innovation that is needed mm. for these types of environments. So I was, it was really attracted to it. But then you have the personal side where I was like, I can't wait for a startup again right now. Like I got, I got loans, I got bills. Um, you know, it's a grind. It's, it's, it's mentally taxing as well. And so I ended up working in venture capital, looking sort of recruiting for venture capital. I found a fund that's based in Washington, D.C. called Quona Capital. I learned a lot. The team was phenomenal. But after about a year, 12 to 18 months, I started getting that, that itch again. I started trying to figure out a way to work for a startup and get back on, on the continent. So I ended up joining a company called Lori Systems, which is a tech-enabled logistics company. They like um, coordinate long-haul trucking and freight across Africa. But the founder and CEO was a good friend of mine from business school, so I knew him quite well. After a couple months in, I ended up taking on an interim CFO role. Finding a C we can talk about this later, but finding a CFO in Africa is really hard. There's just not a ton of folks who have that skill set and experience. And so we probably had like an eight-month search for a CFO, and in the meantime, I was dealing with like audits and, and KRA and all types of fun CFO things that I hope I never have to do again. But for the most part, the, the team was firing all cylinders. And so coming into January, February of 2020, we were hitting all-time numbers and then COVID hits. And uh, <laughs> Another pandemic. <laughs> another pandemic. I was like, I can't get away, man. And the founder and I at, at, at Lori, we, we were pretty transparent around, you know, I, I was probably going to be there for a couple years, two or three years. And at that time, we had just hired a CFO. And so it was kind of actually a good natural time to, to think about something else. 
and I always want to come back to investing and, and he knew that. And so ended up joining another fund in September, which is where I currently work at Flourish Ventures. So have so much appreciation and gratitude and love for the team at Lori. Felt like Sierra Leone again, right? Or like even like Jumia in some ways where you're in the trenches, like you're firefighting every day and you kind of been a battle. You have the scars to prove it. And now that I'm again back on the other side, I can look back with, yeah, with just a lot of gratitude about what I learned and how that shaped me as an investor, but as a person. And so, so that brings me to today. So back on the investing side, back in VC, but still in Nairobi at least. Yeah, fantastic. Well, look, thanks for that. <laughs> for that. And what I find really helpful about going into that background, one, because I think it's, it's amazing and great for people to hear the different, the variety, the different perspectives and, and that kind of journey you made of dotting along and trying to find your way. And, but I think secondly, when it comes to discussion on the startup world, the fact that you've worked for two startups, mm-hmm. that you've worked for two VC funds, for a PE fund, you have a, a view on the realities. And I think, as I'll come to share, I mean, there's a, there's a perspective and an image that is becoming more prominent around African investing space, particularly in the wake of last year, recognizing some of the problems and some of the systems that are in place. But then there's also a discussion that needs to be had about the nitty gritty and like, how does this work in reality? And so I think it's, it's great to be able to speak with someone who has a lived experience. I thought I would share a few stats mm-hmm. to kind of give the background of the discussion. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, this comes from an article uh, by Larry Madoa, who's a wonderful Kenyan journalist, and he writes, this was in The Guardian at least. So in this context, one was that North American headquartered investors accounted for 42% of all venture capital deals in the last five years. And only 20% of ventures, venture cash, came from African-based investors. So that first element just highlights that the funding in the space is quite prominently from North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and then actually you have experience as well from China, and, and that's a growing force. So that's one dimension of this. Um, then, kind of quite starkly, of the 10 African-based startups that received the highest amount of venture capital in Africa, eight were led by foreigners. Similarly, in Kenya, only 6% of startups that received more than $1 million in 2019 we're led by locals, and like 6% is, is really stark. And what's interesting is, by contrast, in Nigeria, 55% of that was led by locals, and 56% in South Africa. So there are a few countries, Ghana is another one where it has very like low percentage of local-led founders. There are countries with higher, but still at the rate of 50%, so not something we would consider very high either. What it paints is a system and a space which is clearly directing a lot of funds from North America to expat-led founders um, and startups. And so at a big picture level, how do you understand that space and, and see those dynamics? Yeah, and those are great. I mean, I, I wasn't aware of those. So those are great statistics for, for pulling that. I mean, there's, there's two dimensions you described, and one is on the investing side, so the sources of capital, and the other is on the founding side, so the, you know, the entrepreneurs who are leading these enterprises. I'll start on the first side. Um, that's where I sit currently. And I actually think there's a, a clearer, probably a clearer story there and then the second side, which is a bit murkier, so I might wade into that with you, actually, because I'd love your thoughts on it as well. So on the first side, if you think about the flows of capital from North America to Africa, there's, there's a couple factors of why that's happened and why I think it's actually shifting. So one is the sources of capital for the venture space tend to be these large pools of institutional investors, um, especially for the larger checks, right? And those investors have a higher appetite for venture in North America, just in general, because there is this sort of 
returns profile that they've seen in North America that actually gives them more confidence in this space in general, which you know has not traditionally has not been as prevalent in Africa. Um, at least in the, the Western style venture where it's like you're trying to get 100x the Facebooks of the world, right? That has not been, uh, that has not had a lot of popularity here, but it's been like there's decades of, of, of background for that in North America. I say the second bit is this kind of, because so much capital comes from these DFIs or it comes from these sort of like pseudo government investment institutions. And you know this place better than I do, but they have sort of relatively rigid ways of deploying the capital, which means that there's certain institutions that will get access to it. And it tends to be those institutions who have longer track record and who are just closer networks, who have closer understanding or closer relationships with these institutions. And so that tends to be, North again, it's based on who's been around for the longest, who has the right networks. A lot of these sources of capital also are sort of have some implicit biases in who they work with and who they give their, their funding to. And then third, and like overall, I would say that there's this rush to capture the African opportunity. And I think it's very risky to, for, for Africans to sort of be a part of that story because we haven't seen as many, um, we haven't seen the wins yet. Um, so I mentioned the Chinese have very aggressively from like 2018 onward looked at deploying capital in Africa. They saw in China, there's been these great success stories mm. for venture with Alibaba and then there's, there's a ton of them that have become very yeah. successful. And they're looking to replicate that success in another market that has similar dynamics mm -hmm. to China like 20 years ago. And so they see the opportunity in Africa in a way that in some ways Africans can't yet because they haven't seen that growth story. I, I, I say that this is changing quite a bit because one, I think at a smaller level, so less at an institutional level, but at a smaller, like an angel level and at like a seed stage level, I think the African investors are really, really breaking up. There's a lot more interest in African investors deploying into African startups than there were um, even okay. two years ago. Um, one, because they're seeing these success stories. Two, because they're, they're having access to these, these deals and access to these investor networks um, that, they, that didn't exist. So like there's a lot of, in the last 12 months, there have been a bunch of kind of angel networks that have been developed that are specifically targeting Africa-focused investors. And so there's a lot of, there's, there's more of a means to deploy this type of capital. And then I think in general, there's just, there's been like these very public success stories and the way that these ecosystems often work is that the founders and the people that have benefited from success reinvest in the ecosystem, both their time, but, but also their resources, right? What are examples of such recent successes? Yeah, I mean, so last week, actually one of our Flourish's portfolio companies is a company called Flutterwave, which is a, it is basically a payments company that helps to process transactions for merchants um, and even for individuals now. Um, across Africa. It started in Nigeria in 2016 with about a million dollar seed raise. It just closed its series C round, which valued the company at over a billion dollars last week. And so the original founder of that was an entrepreneur called e, Ian Abayeji, who's based out of Lagos. He had started a company before that called Indela, which also had quite a bit of success. And and he's since left Flutterwave, but he's been an active angel investor. For, and he's Nigerian himself. He's Nigerian himself. So born and raised in Nigeria and been a big part of the Lagos ecosystem as an entrepreneur, as a, a sort of advocate for entrepreneurs, and now as an investor. So he's been active as an angel investor in Nigeria for quite some time. But he's also started a sort of investment fund called Future Africa, which essentially pools capital from other interested investors to invest in African startups. And so there's been a few examples of other types of funds like that that have emerged in the last 12 months, which have provided this access and provided this opportunity for folks to reinvest into their own ecosystem that might not have existed. Okay, so this is a growing presence and, and, and force of African private equity or fund managers. Absolutely. Yeah. 
that's a helpful explanation for both from a perspective of decades of experience in this kind of work, a clear, strong story of success mm-hmm. as well originating in North America, which means that there's going to be potentially initially this high prevalence of these North American backed uh, and North American led kind of um, fund managers. Absolutely. Um, and that, and I, again, I think that shift for Africa is going to take a while. So we're seeing it at the like early stage. And that's because you have individual retail investors who can pool capital and have a pretty big impact in that space. For the later stage, it's going to take quite a while. And so then shifting to the second statistic around just quite how starkly, you know, one example being yeah, the 6% of startups mm-hmm. in Kenya receiving high tickets being Kenyan-led and therefore the, the 94% yeah. that are expat-led <laughs> and a high proportion of that, of course, also being white. What is the perspective on that, having yeah, sat on both sides? Yeah, no, I, and that one's a, that one's a tricky one. I, I, we've talked about this before, and I've constantly tried to understand, one, why this exists, but two, why there's such disparity by market, um, because you mentioned the sort of Kenya versus Nigeria, which is very different. I'd say, so part of the answer, I think, has some overlap with the first, which is who's been exposed to that opportunity and who sees that opportunity. And so they, you know, if you know that this exists, then you'll be likely to go for it. And so I think, again, in, in, in Silicon Valley, in, in Asia, in Europe, there have been these really very strong startup success stories. And like individuals have, have financially profited greatly from being involved with startups. Very few, Af- and again, this is a part that's changing, but very few Africans have been a part of like an exit story. I think a second piece of it is probably a bit darker, which is like, you know, you need to have certain safety net um, in order to be a founder, and you need to have certain networks in order to be a founder. So if you think about how the investment space works, someone's going to invest your money, you trust them, and that becomes like the first barrier to entry. If you don't know that person, you won't trust them, so it's harder to give them money. The same thing works for entrepreneurs. Like, as an investor, I'm giving money to this entrepreneur to be a steward of my capital to grow the business. And like that trust at the very basic level comes from relationships and networks. I've worked now for, you know, you mentioned two startups, but also two funds. And as an entrepreneur, when I'm raising capital, the first place I go to is the people that are closest to my network. So if there's an investor that invests us in the past, then he'll introduce me to his friends. And then those investors will be much more likely to take my call, seriously consider investing in me because I've been validated in some way by their network. And this, it goes vice versa. And now as an, as an investor, right now, the way that I get access to deals, there's probably three main ways. One is you know, people reach out cold, which has the lowest success rate. The second is other investors reach out to me, which is a really high success rate. Um, the third way is entrepreneurs, right? Like those are the ones I trust the most, by the way, because they actually know what, what's going okay, on. Yeah. But it's like friends of mine who I've either worked with or partnered with in the past who are like, take a look at them. Like they're doing cool stuff. Mm. But that's those are the three ways I get inbound. Yeah. And those are... The by far the most successful ones are the ones who are network-based. And so as an entrepreneur, your likelihood of receiving funding, which is one of the big pieces, but even just your likelihood of success and having access to like hiring the right people, all that kind of stuff, is so much dictated by your networks. And foreigners tend to be, you know, have the strong networks. They tend to have gone to the schools and know the investors and know the people that give them a leg up in the startup world. And I think it's both that they have the strong networks. It's a network which is also closed from others. So there's a limit to what extent others can join into that network. There's the trust element, which I think makes sense. And no one would question, of course, there's a heavy degree of trust needed in this business. But then there's how does that trust get built and who is it more easily built with versus others and why is that? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, how do you build a trust? Right? There's, there's implicit pieces, which is just being in the right circles. And so there's, I think that's a, a huge layer of it. I think beyond that, I mean, now that these, this, this ecosystem is starting to have its next generations of companies, meaning, you know, I worked at Jumia, and I left Jumia to start this other company. I'm now like a second generation entrepreneur. We now have many more second and third generation entrepreneurs. And part of that trust comes from being a second and third generation. So like if I'm an investor and I'm looking at a founder, one founder who, you know, has no startup experience, one who worked at Flutterwave before, I'm going with the Flutterwave 100%. And just by being at Flutterwave, now you're actually part of this, this network. Like now I know who your investors were. Mm-hmm. I know who your managers were. Um, I can kind of bet you in a way that I couldn't because you worked for a bank before or you worked for a consultant or a telco or whatever. And so as the ecosystem starts to have more second and third generation entrepreneurs and founders, I think that's a way of expanding that trust network. And so it's kind of a notion of like if you, it depends where you start. So if you start with a layer of, let's say, white expat-led founders, Mm -hmm. which we do see in this continent, then they are always going to be the ones that are most prominent, mm-hmm. particularly if they end up hiring at their C-suite level amongst their managers, similarly, you know, white colleagues and friends who are competent but nonetheless mm-hmm. networked. That means that they will become the leading second and third generation versions, right? So it, where is there space for the African entrepreneurs mm-hmm. to start entering if that layer exists? Yeah, and, and I'll actually start a level before that in saying that it started with not, let's say it started with nothing, right? Let's say they started with no entrepreneurs, no venture. You know, there's a, obviously a ton of entrepreneurs in the continent, but for the specific um, asset class, which is venture capital, let's say there's, it didn't exist 10 years ago. And so the first founders were those who were closest to the investor network. So where those, those pools of capital were, that's, and that's why I think so many of those founders were folks who were foreigners, because they had the access to these networks for advice and capital, which was needed to get a company off the ground. And I would, give, I would put Jumia in that bucket to a certain extent. And so you're right, like the first circle around that will likely be, you know, if it's foreigners, it might be foreign, foreign friends, et cetera. Um, but I think in Africa, like it's a, I think it's, it's really hard to probably build out a full leadership team of just foreigners. So, so just by, by proximity, um, that circle starts to expand to include local Africans, I believe, right? At least that's been my, that's what I've seen in my experience. I think it's interesting. So what you're saying is that there's a, a gradual evolution of an ecosystem that mm-hmm. after it goes through a few iterations and cycles, it becomes less concentrated as, you know, white and expat and begins to have more Africans being involved with Flutterwave and many other great right. examples now. So you think it's, an, there's a gradual and natural trying to transition, Absolutely. So, I mean, if you think about Flutterwave as an example, you know, the, the founders of Flutterwave both had entrepreneurship experience before and, and both in many ways have benefited from access, from being like, like one concentric circle away. And so, you know, Ian, I mentioned he had started a company before um, and as a second term time founder, he already had access to investors. He had access to a, a pretty strong talent pool. And, and so he's, they've, they've both of them, E and, and GV, who's now the CEO and, and, and the co-founder of Flutterwave, have brought an entire e- ecosystem of entrepreneurs along with them. Um, the same with Paystack is another example of a pay- payments company. So if you think about the next generation of Paystack employees, right? Again, Paystack has two Nigerian founders. There's, there's already Paystack employees. It's a company called Mono, was founded by ex-Paystack um, software engineer. 
which has already raised you know a million dollars and just got into Y Combinator. So the, he's the third generation mm-hmm. of this ecosystem, and again, he's his network now is even wider than it was the Paystack guys, right? Because he has a separate sphere that he's now tapping into to staff up his business. If you talk to most CEOs on the continent, probably their biggest challenge is hiring as they scale because it's a young ecosystem where there's not a lot of there's not, there's less talent pool to pull from. Whereas Silicon Valley, I mean, everyone is working in startups, so people are, it's really easy to pick folks out. Here, you're often like trying to convert someone from a different space into an entrepreneurship role. I see, and that means that people then do end up having to look outside of this continent for that kind of... Yeah, I mean, and, and we've had this conversation before, but in my opinion is it's only going to get worse. It's going to get worse and then it will get better, but for where the ecosystem is now, where there are now quite a few companies who have raised, you know, five to $10 million of Series A capital. And why I think that this problem will get worse is because increasingly what I'm seeing amongst my portfolio and other entrepreneurs is to get the validation from investors to the Series B stage, you need world-class talent that has been at Series B and above, meaning you need to show that you can build a Series C and D company. So you have experience in those kind of spaces. Exactly. You have a team that has already experienced that type of growth. And obviously in Africa, there's very few teams who have experienced that type of growth. So for a lot of these companies, they are now spending a premium to recruit someone from India, Eastern Europe, and in some cases, even Silicon Valley, so that when they go to an investor meeting and say, all right, we will be the biggest digital bank in Africa. We will have 5 million customers that are active per month. And they're like, all right, well, you have 500,000 customers right now, and no one on your team has ever scaled a business that way. So how can you prove that? Well, you bring on a head of product who did this in, for Neon in Brazil, or who did this for you know, Chime in the US, um, as a means of showing to investors you have the capacity to do this scale, but also mm-hmm. in- internally, you need people who have been a part of that journey to get there. The topic we haven't touched on is the race element mm-hmm. to this, at least explicitly. Yeah. So as someone who's Sierra Leonean American, what is your perspective on the role race plays? Yeah, and this is, you're right, this is a, a challenging one because I've seen the biases that investors have for race. So I've seen the way that just, you know, take Africanness aside, uh, just based on skin color, people have been treated differently as far as their, their expectations of founders and entrepreneurs and understanding. And so I've seen investors ask questions. I've been on calls where investors ask questions about like very basic things that as a series A entrepreneur, like you know this, right? Like you, like someone will say like, you know, this capital is not just for you, right? This is for the business type of things like that, where, and I'm like, you would not ask that to a white founder. You would not ask that in Silicon Valley, but even in Africa, you wouldn't ask that to a white South African or, so I've seen how just race can um, frame investors. I always like to go back, back a second and understand why and like what are the context of it. And if you look at the investors, a lot of the investors in Africa are white. A lot of them are folks who are from the West and who, yeah, and who sort of understand and speak the language of other white founders. And, just, and so it kind of all goes back to the source, like where are the pools of capital coming to and how do they maintain that sort of trust relationship over time? So I think absolutely that, that race plays a factor. I think that's... I'm talking about it within the investing context. I think there is this probably another piece in the hiring context, which is like one level, one iteration from there, which is like, if you have trust and if you speak the same language, then you want to bring on people that you trust and speak the same language with. 
And here we're saying not just that, but look the same. They look the same as well. Yeah, I, I, I think probably like look the same is less of a factor for, for entrepreneurs. But as far as like who they bring in, like there, I, I, I still do deep down feel that there is like an implicit trust amongst white founders to hire white people. Not, not it's implicit bias rather, um, not for any malintent, but just because there is this like trust, speak the same language. Like I've never been part of that club, so it's hard for me to say that. But I feel like I've been adjacent to the club that I can sort of see why that would happen. And I don't think it's for any bad reasons. I think it's just, again... In your experience, it's not not overt. It comes from ignorance. It comes from the subconscious elements that we're humans and we all have patterns and biases. Absolutely. The thing that I would say, which I actually think is more prevalent than that, is that like white founders are very, very conscious of their whiteness in this context. I think... I think in Kenya in particular, there have been enough sort of press around conversations around white founders and like how that skewed the, the, the market and the ecosystem, that white founders are very aware of their whiteness and do make efforts to both balance out their teams and sort of reflect on their biases when it comes to hiring and, and things like that. And yet, if you look at, and you have a better picture than I have, but if you look at a lot of these Startups, they still remain at the C-suite level, mm-hmm. heavily expat and heavily white, mm-hmm. despite this. And I, and I think it goes back to what you said, right? Which is like the networks, they will go just outside their circle if they need to, but their first instinct will be to bring in whoever is mm. close to them. I, I want to say that that's changing because the talent pool of local talent is increasing. There's more folks in startups and the level of experience they have is increasing. Yeah, I, I want to say that's changing, but I, I think it definitely still exists. And so bringing this back to this question of hiring and hiring for C-suite positions, mm-hmm. that's the challenge you faced at Lori that you face. Yeah, because the startup ecosystem is relatively immature and there's relatively few companies who have reached a certain scale in startups, in order to find people who have reached that scale and beyond to staff, it's hard to work within this talent pool. At least in my experience, that's what, okay. that's what challenge has been. That's my observation. I think there's folks can disagree with that. And, and this might be controversial to say, but we spent eight months trying to find a CFO to staff our business. In Kenya, this is. And by far, our preference was to have a Kenyan first and then to have a black African second and then an African third, right? That was certainly our preference because at the time, our executive team, uh, if you looked at the five of us or six of us, all of us, I would say, are... Africans with one foot out and one foot in. So, you know, the co-founder is Togolese, but grew up largely in, in Belgium and France. The founder is South African, grew up largely in the States. Like, I'm Syrian American, but grew up entirely in the States. Our CEO was Nigerian, and she grew up in Nigeria. And we were based, our headquarters in Kenya, we didn't have a single Kenyan on our executive team, right? And that's like something that we were very, very aware of and very conscious of, especially and our Kenyan staff was very conscious of, and that wasn't intentional. So we had a high preference for bringing on a Kenyan, a black African, and then an African. Um, we ended up bringing on a white South African as CFO. And the reason is we worked with five different exec fund firms. We tapped into all of our networks. And for the, the role we wanted, with the, the, the level of seniority we needed and experience, he had spent 30 years at a logistics, as a logistics CFO in South Africa. So very few folks we could find with that profile. Um, within the criteria that we had. And so the intent was there to find someone to fill that role. We had challenges with it, and I know others in the space have also had challenges with it. Here I'm speaking from the outside. Yes. So this is where it's great to get your inside perspective. But I think a lot of people look at the system, mm-hmm. and a lot of Kenyan friends, etc., will look at the system and just be like, this is 
not just implicit, but there is overt racism and bias in the system because of the kind of hiring practices and the data you see. They would say you could find, yes, you could find a Kenyan. So what I would respond to that is, as an entrepreneur, right, the way that I would approach hiring is what are the things that I can do to get the best person into the seat, right? And so to have that question and say, could you have found someone that's Kenyan CFO? I think the question actually should be, what about the process of hiring do you disagree with, right? If you think that's, if that's the case, then what about that led you to not being able to find a Kenyan CFO? So you would flip the question onto kind of me and... So I would outline what we did. And I, this, there's no right answer here. Like for me, it's like, I'm still actively recruiting for a lot of my portfolio companies. So what about our process needs to change in order to find the talent that yeah. we need? Because we, the goal here is, I think we're all on the same page. So like, what, how do we fix this? So... For us, what we do in a lot of companies, we'll start with networks, right? That's, which I think there's certainly a lot that can be changed about that. Because the way that many companies, especially at the senior level, they will work on referrals for the most part. So they will reach out to their networks and say, we're looking for this role. Do you know anyone? Have you, are you familiar with anyone? They'll call people from business school. In my case, we, I called a bunch of B-school classmates. I called our investors and I called um, entrepreneurs that I respected and was like, listen, we need this role. We, here's, here's a JD. Um, send it to people you know, shoot me back people you know. Um, so that was the first thing, and I think that's probably like the number one way that most people do it, and probably the preferred way that people, entrepreneurs, will try to find, is by blasting their networks um, with a profile. The second is we hired uh, recruitment, fir- recruitment firms, right? So we worked with at least four or five different recruitment firms, because it was a high priority. They're, they're really expensive, <laughs> They are sometimes not super cooperative in that like, they'll send a bunch of irrelevant profiles. But for high priority, priority hires where you have the budget for it, you go to recruitment firms. Um, so that's number two. And then number three would be like a kind of more public posting where you put it online or you put it on your website and you feel, you feel responses. It, we didn't do that for, for senior positions. You tend not to do that because there's a lot of sensitivities around it. I would say those are probably the three means by which we have to hire. Now, I'll say what I think are the issues with all three of those. And, and then let me, maybe you can help me think about like, what are ways that we could to change that? So the first one, networks, of course, it can be implicit challenges with networks, right? It means that you are only able to find the people that are within two degrees of separation from you. I would say the plus side to that is you have the trust, you have the referrals. I think the second, executive firms. Executive firms also have their kind of network biases. It tends to be a much larger pool than I would initially have access to. And so it somewhat tempers that issue of, of only having your circle. But there are sort of biases. I mean, there's people that are on the radar screen of executive firms, and there's folks that aren't, right? And so we might be missing out on a whole level of individual. And the third, it has a similar issue. It's like you, you are only reaching the people that you can access from either your website or your LinkedIn or whatever. So in all these instances, the pools are limited based on uh, the proximity of the, the pool itself. That's the reality of how... We you know, will try to find candidates and how most, I think, most entrepreneurs will try to find candidates. Yeah, it's, and <laughs> it's good to flip the question because then it's, it's easy to point out problems and harder to point out solutions. And so this is where I'll stumble. And I think this is where if people have thoughts and a challenge <laughs> to the audience to please like, send in ideas and thoughts and, on and this. I, I'm saying absolutely please do because this is not a zero sum. It's not like, no, this is all of us trying to think of ways to 
improve the talent pool and give access to those who are being overlooked. Because if we have these people, then we'll actually develop better solutions. It'll be better for the companies. This process will be easier for people overall, and it'll be more inclusive. We'll develop better. Solutions. So this is so this is not this is really like a, a call to arms. Like I am actively trying to figure out ways that we can get better at this for my portfolio and for the ecosystem in the whole. But anyway. Okay. No, and I really appreciate that. And one of the key things that from the discussion comes out, there is a perception, and I definitely had this in our initial conversations of looking at the data, looking at this space, mm-hmm. and being like, people just aren't trying. People, founders, white founders, white startups, etc., are just not trying hard enough. Mm-hmm. And if they were open and they were thoughtful and they were diligent about this, they would find qualified, you know, competent Kenyan talent. Yep. And I think what comes out is that you guys have tried, at least in your experiences, mm-hmm. and you have struggled. So it's so the perception that you're not trying, <laughs> at least in your case, I think that isn't a fair perception. And so it's about okay, well, how can we engage to actually find that talent? So I don't know enough about that, but please, mm-hmm. I'd love to get others and, and we can share. I think one thing that comes out is that there's both the pools that one reaches, and then of course each pool has a different degree of trust that you've accessed it through. So website versus exec firm versus networks, and then there's the heavy, heavy trust rely like reliance within that process afterwards. And that's where I would have thought that I'm beginning to see there's the workspace and then there's the personal social space and the Mm -hmm. lack of engagement between expats and Kenyans in Mm -hmm. this context to be friends, to hang out together in a rich sense rather than just turn Mm -hmm. up at parties and speak in their own groups is a limiting, heavily limiting factor. And that's where the duty to expats, I think, could extend beyond just turning up to a place, but actually forming close relationships with Kenyans who then might know, they would know much better, right? If you have a very close Kenyan friend who works in a prominent place, they would know much better the relevant Kenyan for such a post. So I would think that would be one actionable way. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's that's very true, right? The pushback I would say is it can be difficult to try to dictate someone's social context, right? Because, I mean, that's just a personal thing and, and, and not to say that there's a good way or bad way to live one's life, but um, to assume that founders should change their social context. I mean, I think there's obviously benefits to doing it, but I just, I, I have a tough time being too prescriptive around that one, but but, but I, I do agree that that would unlock sort of, a, just a, beyond just for creating, but obviously it's a better, it's a full-on understanding and a lot of sort of externalities that are positive. Um, but, uh but, but but I think you're right, though. I think that would certainly, like, if this is going to be a network-based and if you are moving to a place and, like, continually and your network is, is like, exclusive, um, especially based on this particular point, like, like, having Kenyans or locals in general in your network, then, like, your networks will always have this bias, right? You'll, you'll continue to encounter this. And it's and you're right that like, the professional, especially here, the professional and social context are so overlapping that, you know, being prohibitive in both does have effects but but to this trust point I'll, I'll tell you two stories right and this is and this is personal stories that happened to us i won't say the position or anything but um we had a very senior hire that was coming in early on in my time and he worked for you know we had we worked for a public company in kenya came sort of highly recommended and again i told you we really wanted to have a kenyan on our exec team and so the same way that we eventually hired the cfo from a south african like large logistics company we're like, all right, we'll go to a large Kenyan company, and this person has a relevant skill set. What happened is this: he was, you know, a senior person, but had no understanding of, of startups. And so, very early on, we were like, this is not going to work. Like, he doesn't understand very basic things about what his job is because he's done it at a public company, which is very different from 
and to to the point around finding someone that had the right experience and skills like he might have had the skills but he didn't have the experience right and so he was a senior level person but wasn't able to work in that context so only lasted a few weeks spent a lot of money onboarding all that kind of stuff only last few weeks another example brought someone on um again sort of adjacent to our networks but a very senior role uh the person came on uh the first week you know he was organizing all these meetings had all his enthusiasm and then the second week we didn't know where he was couldn't find him he was didn't show up to the office wasn't answering his phone we we're like what's going on turns out he had went back to his old job and collected a bunch of money from us and took a, a bit of money as well and never had never even resigned from his last job took a week off and you know to and and so so all this to say that you know this the reasons that founders in this context rely so heavily on that referral network and that trust is because they've gotten burned it's not because it, it, it's not it, i mean it's not just because it's easier like it is easier i think but the repercussions of it not working out are actually quite severe in certain contexts and so yeah i think every founder every founder that's raised that that's reached a certain level can tell you about having bad hires and the impact that has on their business right and so one way to get over that is to like continue to get your trust circle smaller and smaller or at least and and, and that yeah. and that it reveals more and more biases i think and so what i'm hearing from you is that we need to shift the discussion from just highlighting hey this is a problem and I think in doing so, assuming it's a very simplistic, like just overt racism thing and recognizing that there are just like real challenges startup founders face in recruitment, in trust, and it has serious consequences. Serious consequences. I, I know other examples. People have gotten burned pretty bad. And so there's a reason why this is the process that has emerged. Mm. And I think it comes from not malintent at all. Okay. So these, these startup founders are, are busting their ass to, to try to do this. Man, that's why I also have a difficult time vilifying these founders because I know how hard they work to create something from nothing and the challenges they face, you know, they're, they're willing to face the criticism because they feel so much passion and drive for what they do. But I find it hard on their behalf sometimes. Okay. No, I really appreciate getting this other perspective because mm-hmm. I'm someone who's from the outside have been willing to throw rocks pretty, pretty <laughs> easily. Hey man, <laughs> you hold us up. Keep us honest. Keep us honest. <laughs> yeah. Going back to the beginning why I'm in this space is I genuinely believe that for the complexity of the challenges that Africa faces, degree of growth that's required, I just genuinely in my heart think that entrepreneurship and innovation and this venture model in some respects is the best means of achieving that growth. And I think no matter where you are in the world, it is really, really, really hard. It's like incredibly difficult and complex, and it's more so here. And I think these entrepreneurs are really trying their best and doing fighting tooth and nail every day for a range of issues that it's hard for me even like think about without getting a PTSD. Yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for this conversation and for these opportunities for collaboration because anything that we can do to improve the efficiency of hiring or of management styles or of collaborating, all those wins are needed because of how challenging it is. And so though the rocks you break the window and you actually like come in and like, oh, hold on, you're actually, you're working pretty hard, you're sweating pretty hard in there. I'm sorry about throwing that rock, you know? And then you actually, but by the way, you can do this a little bit differently and you might, you might I, I hope that we have more opportunities for that because yeah. I think it's so needed and I think everyone wants the same goals, so. Yeah. Well, look, I think it's just really great to get 
a very rich, different perspective, and someone who's committed trying to also find a way for all of us to, you know, work together and, and collaborate better. So I really appreciate that. For those that I'm sure will want to reach out mm-hmm. and hear more, how can they share some of their own ideas to you and, and get out? Yeah, shoot me an email. I'll drop it in the yeah. description and posts. Perfect. And I'm, I'm here in Nairobi, so always happy to have a coffee or a run and, and encourage and appreciate all thoughts and ideas. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Development Dilemma. It's been a while since the last and I continue to overpromise. So going forward, you can expect at least one episode per month and I hope to do more. This is a really tricky topic and I'd love to hear from you. Did you disagree with Ifeomi? Have you any ideas on how he could source local leaders better? If you know someone who'd love to speak, please do share their contacts and any thoughts on social media. All links in the description. It's been a joy to watch this show gain momentum, so please continue to share and subscribe to continue the conversation.